like to introduce uh, Tejo, who is our founder and CEO of Airbase, who's going to be leading the session. So, hey, Tejo, good morning. Thank you, Laura. Awesome. Thanks, everyone, for uh, joining uh, this interview. I'm really excited to have Jeff uh, join us today. And you know, Jeff has had a very illustrious career. He started off at, at, at Kingworld Productions, not exactly in the technology industry, but it was a uh, a production firm for TV programs, like many of them you might have heard of Wheel of Fortune and the Oprah Winfrey Show and, and shows like that. But then he moved on to uh, the technology industry, companies like DoubleClick and Nielsen and Oracle. And he was a CFO of a bunch of these well-known uh, you know, businesses. And for the last 10 years, he's been an operating partner at Bessemer Venture Partners. He's been a board member at, at a number of really high impact businesses like Twilio and Shutterstock and Kaiser Permanente. And uh, you know, very experienced operator, uh, Jeff. I'm super happy to have you and and to kind of dig into your story of your path to becoming a CFO. Thanks so much for joining us. Teja, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So let's let's dive right in. So as I was talking about in the intro, you you started your career in investment banking and, and in media company. You spent a good amount of time, but then uh, you know. You then moved into more traditional technology companies. Was that mostly about the dot-com boom and, and what was happening? And I'd, I'd love to know uh, why you made that choice to say, okay, technology seems interesting and I should be there, right? Well, as an investment banker, I, I started in the media industry because I liked media as a consumer. I liked reading newspapers and magazines and watching TV and uh, it figured it was a fun industry to be in. Uh, so I was doing mergers and acquisitions for a firm called First Boston, which is now Credit Suisse. Uh, and we were in, this was the 1980s, business was booming. I represented ABC in the merger with Cap Cities and, and a number of other exciting transactions. And then King World was my client and they had an accounting CFO. They wanted a Wall Street CFO and I was 32 years old and, and they asked me to join. And I, I'm glad I did. It was the first chance to be a CFO. I had never worked in a financial organization. So I had never worked for a CFO or in the finance department. I had taken accounting in school and I, I knew a lot about Wall Street, but there was a lot I didn't know about being a CFO. So it was a great, a great chance to learn. Got it. And yeah, speaking of that learning, I, I'm always interested to learn more about when, when folks make that shift from one industry that they've been in. Uh, and especially as you went from investment banking to media and then media to you know uh, technology, what was easy or difficult about switching those industries or, or, or domains for you? Well, let's take them one at a time. So going from banking to being a CFO, the best bankers are fundamentally salespeople. So they have to understand Wall Street and capital markets, but it, a big part of their job is selling. And the, the CFO, I, I've always thought the best CFOs have three major functional areas of experience, the capital raising, Wall Street side, the accounting control, running the ship uh, efficiently and effectively side. And then the third is the analysis and business partnering side of financial planning and analysis. And I actually, my first job out of business school was at a consulting firm, Boston Consulting Group, which was heavy on business analysis. So I felt pretty good. I never worked in budgeting or financial planning, but I, I was pretty good at Excel and, and good at built business modeling. So I, I felt confident on the business modeling side. I felt confident on the capital market side. Had, very, had no experience really on the accounting and control side. And so my number one priority when I first became CFO was to meet with Len Spilka, who was the CFO who was being replaced and persuade him not to quit. So we were, we, he, he was being demoted from CFO to VP finance, but I said, Len, look, you're terrific at 
all the internal stuff. You just don't have the Wall Street experience. Let's work together. We'll be partners in this. I'd love for you to stay. I'm going to pay you more money. Teach me how to be a CFO. So often people in their career are trained by their their mentors and their bosses to be good at their job. I was trained by some of my subordinates to be good at my job, which is a little different, but it worked out great. And Len stayed the entire time I was there and he's a good friend today. All right, that's, and then awesome. that's, that's if I could finish then that, that's the functional side. Then on the industry side, it was very clear in the 1990s, once the internet came along that the media industry was gonna have revolutionary change. Uh, the idea of cutting down trees, taking them to a, Converting to paper, uh, taking the paper to a printing plant, having the print the, the paper uh, printed and then shipped to your home was not a very efficient way of delivering news once the internet existed. And so, if you look at just pick your head up and look around you at, at the trends in technology and society, and you say, I think all media is going to move to be digital over time, and I wanted to be part of that, and I was lucky enough to have an opportunity at DoubleClick, which was an internet advertising technology company. So half media, half technology. And it was a great transition for me to go move from media to technology. Yeah, and that really was such a fascinating kind of up and down story, right? So you were exactly in the middle of, you know, the highs and then the lows. And so tell us a bit about uh, that experience. I joined DoubleClick in 1998, which was three years after the first internet ad ran. So the entire industry was zero in 95. In 98, we had about 25 million in revenue. And then we went public and three years later, we had 500 million in revenue. So it grew from 25 to 500 million in revenue in three years, grew from 180 people to over 2000 people. Just incredible experience. And of course, internet advertising is enormous now. Internet advertising passed all other forms of advertising globally uh, a few years ago. So it's now the biggest form of advertising. It may even be more than half of all global advertising. So in my career, just over the course of 23 years, saw something go from nothing to being the biggest sector in the industry. It's just, if you, if you hang around long enough, you get a chance to see these major, major changes. Uh, so that was very exciting to do. And then when the internet bubble burst and NASDAQ collapsed, a lot of our customers were funded by, by the IPO boom and the, in the internet boom. And so our, our revenues, uh, dropped quite a bit. We, we shrunk from about uh, 500 million in revenue to 250 million in revenue. We uh, had to cut, lay people off and cut back on our lines of business, shrank to about a thousand people and, and went through a very tough time uh, for a couple of years. Uh, we were, fortunately, we had raised a lot of money at the top of the market. So when my philosophy has always been raise money when you can, not when you need it. So we did a $700 million equity offering a few weeks before the top of the market, which that the timing was just luck, but the concept was the market was hot. We were going to raise money. And so we always had capital during all that time. And Google ended up acquiring the company. And today, DoubleClick is probably worth tens of maybe $30 billion or more inside of Google. So it's uh, it's been a just a ter terrific business. And, and, and uh, DoubleClick has also been a fascinating source of talent uh, inside of uh, Google, right? Lots of leaders came from Absolutely. A lot of the leaders at Google today came from DoubleClick and then a number of DoubleClick people left and Kevin Ryan, who's been an incredible entrepreneur in New York, uh, Wendell Millard, uh, quite a few other people have been just a phenomenal job. Awesome. So, and, 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 and ultimately, of course, I guess you are, if I'm not mistaken, you're most well known for being CFO of uh, Oracle. And it's always fascinating. You know, there are a few 
you know, special technology companies uh, like Oracle of that size or that scale. And, and uh, you know, people always tend to think that hey, to get to a C-level position uh, in a business like that, it has to be relationships and long relationships and, and that kind of stuff, comfort and uh, you know, all of that. But that wasn't the case uh, with you and how you ended up in that position, was it? And, and I'd love to, I'm sure everybody would be interested in hearing that story of how you uh, got that role at uh, CF, as CFO of Oracle. It's a funny story. Uh, so I was living in New York uh, and I wanted to move back to Silicon Valley. I'd gone to Stanford for business school and loved it out here, but we didn't want to move when our children were in high school and I had three children. So for 10 years, it, we just said, it's not time to move. Finally, my youngest uh, was graduating high school. She was lucky enough to get into Stanford and the week after she was accepted to Stanford, I got on a plane and came out to California and, and started looking around for CFO roles. And I had been contacted by a recruiting firm through LinkedIn, a cold outreach through LinkedIn about another CFO role for a company uh, a few months prior. Uh, and that, what, that, that company wasn't the right one for me, but it, it, uh, it introduced me to this recruiting firm who I'd never heard of before, a guy named David Nozel, who is a terrific recruiter. So I called up David and said, I'm coming out to California, thinking about moving out here. And he had the assignment to, for the CFO of Oracle Search and met with him. He introduced me to Safra Katz, who today is the CEO of, of Oracle. And I met with Safra and she said, uh, you know, are you free this afternoon? And uh, you know, Larry Ellison would like to meet you. And I said, yeah, I think I can make some time to meet him. And <laughs> so I met with Larry and very quickly they, they recruited me and it was just a tremendous experience. Oracle's one of the best managed companies in the world uh, and just have a lot of respect for them. It's just a tremendous experience. That's fascinating. So ultimately you can draw, how did you get the job at Oracle? It would be the truth to say, uh, you know, off of LinkedIn, right? Well, it was a little indirect, but it, it definitely, I don't know if I hadn't, if they had not reached out to me on LinkedIn, I don't know if I ever would have met David Nozel. So you're right. Exactly. So I, I'm sure LinkedIn would love to put you on a billboard, right? Like, <laughs> you know, Jeff got the CFO job at Oracle via LinkedIn. So that's amazing. And so you know, your, your time at Oracle, at a company of that scale and scope, obviously you had other high profile roles before that. How do you kind of say the Oracle role was different from a challenge of being CFO uh, perspective? Like, did you expect going into that role, what it would be like? You know, what was that kind of learning curve uh, like for you? Well, it, it, it's taken me maybe six months. And whenever I join a new company, probably the first six months is just going around meeting people and learning about the business, the products, the customers, the, the people, uh, what the challenges are. Occasionally you join a company which is in crisis and you just don't have time to, 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 to learn like that. You have to immediately make decisions, but often you, you don't have to make any decisions for the first few months. You can just learn what's going on. And, and that was what I did at Oracle. Or at Oracle, it was a different scale. We had over 100,000 people. There were 6,000 people reporting just to me as the CFO. So I was learning about all the different different teams. I had 14 direct reports. So that was a big group for me to try to learn all about that. Uh, and what I did is I, I had a process that's worked well for me, which I recommend to everyone, which is when you start a new role, uh, meet with all your peers, Meet with your boss if you're if it's if you're connected to the board. Meet with the board of directors. Meet with your subordinates, and say, "I'm learning about the business. Tell me what's going well. What can we do better? And how can I and my team help?" And then be quiet and take notes. 
And I'm at Oracle, since it's a large company, I had over a hundred of those meetings in the first three months. Uh, and I collected a lot of information and I ended up with a list of 300 things to do that we could be do, doing better, which was a little surprising because Oracle's a really well-run company. I would have thought that they were already doing lots of things well, but at, no matter what size company, there's always things you can do better. And then I grouped them in, in buckets and uh, focused on, on how to do them better. And a lot of them had to do with automating things within the financial function. Uh, we were doing a lot of things manually. You know, one question I had was if we're the, the largest enterprise software company in the world and we're so efficient and effective, what are all these 6,000 people doing? I mean, why do we need so many people? Why, isn't it, why don't I just push a button and the software works and things happen and you don't need people. But so I had a thousand people in the contracts department and I had another thousand people in credit collections and we had I think over a hundred people in revenue recognition. So there was a lot of things where we did have systems and we had software, but they were not optimized. And so what we did is we had a team of global process owners, uh, which predated me, which were really very good at what they did. So we'd have a global process owner for the contract process and a global process owner for the sales compensation process. And that person did not run the department. That person was sort of off on the side. They were staff. And their job was to say, let's take a look at everything we do in this process. How do we do it today? How should we do it? How do we get from here to there? How do we improve the technology, the software, the systems, the processes. And then when we make an acquisition, how do we take that process in the acquired company and integrate it into Oracle? Because we were a very acquisitive company and, and we were phenomenal at acquisition merger integration. Got it. And so it, one of the things that uh, it's always interesting for me to hear uh, from experienced CFOs is about the, the route of how you get there. You clearly, again, came from an investment banking background in all the conversations I've had, uh, strategic finance, uh, that has an edge clearly in terms of uh, folks getting into the CFO role. And, uh, but there have been a number of people who come from audit control, that kind of background, uh, who also end up in the CFO role. What's your experience been from that perspective? Um, and and what would you tell the folks who, who have, as per the numbers, a slightly lesser chance of getting to that CFO role uh, in terms of how they can uh, you know, uh, build up the skills required to you know, get the confidence of CEOs and boards to get into that uh, CFO role, right? Well, here's the framework I use to think about it. If you are looking to get hired as a CFO, think of what is the, the person hiring you is going to be the CEO. So ask yourself, what does that CEO want? And the answer is the CEO wants someone who's already done it. So when the CEO, Kevin Ryan of DoubleClick was recruiting me, he wanted someone who'd already been a public company CFO with either media or technology experience. And I had been the CFO of KingWorld. So I, I fit right in the center of the bullseye. Now, when the, the CEO of KingWorld was hiring me, I was not in the center of the bullseye because I had never been the CFO before. So why did he hire me? And the answer is because he knew me, that we had worked together for over a year and he had a lot of confidence that I would figure it out. So if you, if you have the perfect experience and you fit in the box, the recruiters will call you, the CEOs will call you, board members will call you, you're going to be in great shape. If you do not have exactly the right experience, even though you have the capability, it's, it's likely you're not going to get the chance from someone you don't know. Uh, but you will get the chance from someone you do know, from someone you have a relationship. So the key there is to, uh, is to either develop relationships with people who are in the position to either hire you or make rec strong recommendations to hire you because they're 
board members or investors or, or CEOs or CXOs, or to take a job, which is not the job you want, but it's the job one step away from the job you want. So if you want to be CEO of a public company and you don't, you're not going to be eligible for that. If you could come in as the controller of that company or the head of FP&A of that company, and then let's say the CEO is 20 years older than you and they move on and they retire. Once you're in, they'll give you a chance because they know you. Got it. That's fascinating. And it, and, and as you have worked through your uh, career, I'm, I'm sure you had folks coming up below you, you know, your uh, kind of team members have gone on to become CFOs. And this is always interesting for me to hear. When you think about patterns of what makes uh, people eligible for CFO roles, people who consistently end up in those roles, what is your learning been like? What are those personality characteristics and the work ethic and the approach to doing the work that in your experience kind of opens up that opportunity uh, uh, to people? Well, number one is integrity. Uh, the CFO has to be the voice of truth within the company. Uh, and there's always temptations to shade the truth. And so that's the first thing I look for. Uh, secondly, we, as an individual contributor early in your career, you're doing all the work yourself. When you're the CFO of Oracle, you have 6,000 people, you're delegating everything. And so from here to there, you go from doing 100% to maybe doing 75%, delegating 25%, then it's 50-50, then it's doing 25%, delegating 75%. Ultimately, it's, it's delegating everything. And so the question of that leadership role over time, have you built a track record of recruiting great people, helping them to be trained, uh, building a team of people who are terrific around you. And that's something that I did not ha have coming into King World, but over time, that's something I built. And then often you'll see a CFO joins a company and they bring two or three key people, people with them because they've, they've had a lot of success and people wanna, wanna work with them. That's a very good sign if someone you recruit can, can bring several people with them. So that, that idea of leading through others is very important. Having a good understanding of the business, the best CFOs I know are not only good technically at the accounting and the analysis, but they really understand the products, the customers, uh, the whole business model. In fact, I, I'm working with a company now where I'm an advisor and I helped recruit the CFO to one of the best in our portfolio companies. And they had a small business. They were focusing on enterprise sales, million dollar sales. And he came to the conclusion that that's a very risky way of, of going about it because you can work for a year or two and you think you're going to get four or five deals, but if you don't, you have nothing. And yet their product was, was, is, uh, is, has, has an opportunity to sell to much smaller companies at hundred thousand dollar numbers instead of million dollar numbers. And he's going to lead the transition of the, the entire business model of that company to take the same product, but to focus on the mid market versus the enterprise market, at least for the next couple of years. And that came from the CFO's understanding of the business. So that's the kind of business partner role that is extremely important. Got it. And so speaking of, you know, you talked about how in your first CFO role at King World, uh, leadership and, and recruiting and all of that wasn't something you were good at yet. And then you had to work at it. And how did you go about it? Like, did you have mentors who helped you? And uh, how do you approach kind of the uh, growth uh, process, right? And And do you go about it in a systematic way where you identify mentors and work with them, or is it more of a do the job, screw up, fail, get better at it? Uh, you know, what's your approach? Well, I had informal mentors. There were people I worked for early in my career at 
BCG or at uh, the Washington Post who were phenomenal leaders and who I would often call for advice and, and were very helpful personally. Uh, because I never worked in a finance organization for a CFO, I, I didn't have that kind of mentorship, which I missed. And, and I think in a, if I could do my career over again, maybe I, I would have done that. Uh, and so I, I had my advisors and mentors were all people, were, were peers as much as anything. And then, as I said, often subordinates where I, I'd asked for that. But I always wanted to learn. I always felt that there was so much I didn't know. And I was very curious and I would just ask people. And that a good sign is of someone when I when I talk to them is when they don't know something, they don't take it. They just say, look, I don't have, have I don't know that. I'd like to learn. What I would do is when I when I would join a new company, I'd have a lot of questions. You, every company has their own acronyms and jargon. So I would just write down everything I didn't know. I wouldn't ask every question because it would have been hundreds of questions. But over the course of a week or two, I might have written down a hundred things. And then at the end of the week, I find out, well, actually 20 or 30 of them got answered just because I was in a meeting and someone mentioned it but I still have all these unanswered questions. Then I would take someone aside and say, hey, can you help me? What does this mean? What does this acronym mean? What, is, what does that mean? And, and just over time, uh, you know, learn more and more and ask for help. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's really, it's amazing how effective it is to just say, I have this challenge. Can you help me think through this problem? How would you approach it? Why? Is there someone else I could talk to who's been through this before? The humility to say, I don't know, right? And and, right. and so uh, in terms of leadership, recruiting, you talked about how you were leading a team of 6,000 people, um, you know, at, at Oracle and, you know, to attract a layer of team, uh, you know, below you or, or the immediate, your own leadership team, those are all kind of probably CEO caliber people of, of lesser businesses, right? And so you have to kind of, uh, you know, project that competence and confidence in them to come work for you. And uh, I'm assuming that is a process, you know, that, that took many years for you to get to that point and learn. And and maybe what are some of the lessons learned in terms of convincing incredibly strong people uh, to come work for you, uh, you know, as you were going down that path yourself? Well, the, the first thing is to understand what the job is. And so since I had not personally being a controller or head of FPNA or these other jobs, uh, when someone would leave, what I developed over time is if someone, one of my subordinates left, instead of filling that role right away, I often would uh, have that person's direct reports report to me for three or six months. So I could actually sort of semi do their job for a short period of time. And I'd find out all sorts of things because when you have a skip level to someone not reporting to you, but reporting to two levels down, uh, and you get to meet them personally and spend a lot of time with them, you, you can learn a lot about what's going on in your own organization and then also what the needs of that job are. And then when I recruited someone to fill that, either internal promotion or uh, from outside, I had a much better job of what the job requirements were. And then once you find the, so then you meet a lot of candidates and uh, you try to do reference checking, which is extremely important. And if we have time, I can talk about a technique that I use for that. And then when you meet the candidate you, you've decided on, it's really a question of finding out what they want with their career. And sometimes it's a good fit, sometimes it's not. You know, do they, is this a, a stretch for them? Is this, have they done this already and they'd be bored by doing it again? Do they want to do it for the next five years or just the next one year? What are they looking to do with their career? And, and is this, can, can I give them what they want? And if, if I believe I can, then, then it's a pretty easy sale process. Got it. And another 
kind of uh, aspect of leadership is is being on the board and, and you're not in an operating role as a CFO leading building on a day-to-day -day basis, but you know, you've been in many board roles over the last uh, 10, 15 years. And how has that changed your perspective, if at all, about how CFOs should engage with boards, right? And uh, now that you've been on this other side of the table and has that evolved or changed your thinking because you were always a CFO in, in some ways answering to the board, engaging with the board and giving confidence to the board uh, from an operating role. Now you're on the other side. Has that perspective changed? Well, yes, it has. And I've served on boards for over 25 years and it's been very helpful. I advise every CFO, if you have a chance to serve on one outside board, especially on the audit committee or as chair of the audit committee, absolutely take that, take advantage of that because you'll, you'll work with a different accounting firm or accounting partner. You'll get a chance to see a different company's structure and technologies and processes and how they do it. It's a, it's a phenomenal experience to, for any development experience for any CFO. And the difference, of course, between a board member and an executive is the executive is in charge of uh, making decisions and uh, executing, whereas the board fundamentally is in charge of asking questions and giving advice and not making decisions. It's very rare, other than hiring and firing the CEO, it's very rare that a board makes a decision and overrules the executive team for a public company or a private company other than a, a private equity controlled company. So the exception is if you have a private equity firm which controls the company, then often the, the, the partners in the private equity firm who are on the board are the control shareholders and they actually are making some of the decisions. But uh, for the most part, that's, that's not the case. And so my role as a board member is to understand the business. I have a duty of loyalty and a duty of care, which is the legal definition of the board member's role. Uh, I want to understand everything I can, ask a lot of questions. And then when I have a point of view, not tell what the answer is, but ask questions to just understand why management thinks what they think and make sure they've thought about the alternatives before they make a decision. Got it. And so shifting focus back a little bit to the operating uh, side of things, you know, the role of finance in, in a company, like as you went through progressively larger businesses of, of you know, scale, how did you kind of work to build trust and, and improve the relationships between finance and other parts of the organization. And at the end of the day, you know, finance and accounting can have this reputation of, okay, back office and, and the folks who say no and, and that sort of thing, right? And how does that challenge change between like a smaller company and a company at the scale of Oracle? Are the dynamics pretty similar? Well, there are some similarities and I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say that uh, you're thinking about the budget for the next year and all the business people want more budget. So the head of sales comes in and says, I need to hire more salespeople. The head of marketing comes in and says, they need more marketing budget. The engineering people come in and say the same thing. And if you add up what everybody wants, it's more than you can afford in the company because then you have enormous losses. So how do you, as a CFO, approach that? One way is to say no. And you say, look, this is the budget. We're going to have, you, you know, I'm, I'm allocating X dollars to you. That's all you have. And I've never found that to be a helpful way of going about it. it. All the companies I've worked for, all the senior executives are shareholders and they're, the biggest part of their net worth is equity in the company. So I start by saying, look, here's our history. Here's where we wanna go over the next five years. So let's say that our plan is to grow 30% a year for the next five years. And you know, we have a billion dollars of revenue today. We wanna be 
you know, two and a half billion dollars in revenue in five years. And we want to, and today we're losing a little bit of money in five years, we want to have a 20% operating margin. So I'll sit down with each CXO one at a time. And they might not have thought about it this way, but I'll just say, look, here's our company five-year plan. Do you agree that as a shareholder, this is the right plan for the company? And they say, yeah, pretty much. This is what I, I hope we're going to do. Okay. Well, if we're going to do that, we can only have X number of people at the company this year and next year. So we have X number of people. We can hire 200 people. We can't hire 200 salespeople if we're going to hire 200 people with the whole company because that means no engineers. So if we're going to hire 200 people across the company, even though you're head of sales, what's a reasonable number of salespeople to hire? And the head of sales started out asking for 200 people, but then when they realize that they're part of this organization and they can't have everything, they themselves will say, yeah, you're right. I, I actually, it's in my interest to make sure we hire enough engineers. It's in my interest to make sure we hire, hire enough marketing people. So then they, they figure out roughly you know, where they fit into the ecosystem. And, and that kind of dialogue is very helpful. Fascinating. Now that that's uh, so interesting that because it applies to companies of every size, that exact same yeah. conversation, right? right? And not just an Oracle scale conversation. And also, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the CEO CFO relationship. You were talking about, you know, Larry Ellison. I don't know if, if Larry Ellison was the CEO uh, back then when you were a CFO, but uh, him especially has kind of this outsized uh, reputation and, and, but, of course, you've had, you've worked with a number of other uh, CEOs. Uh, what did you take away in terms of lessons about that relationship with the CEO? I, I have a similar question about the relationship with the board and how you approach that. But let's start with uh, the the CEO CFO relationship. Right. Well, at Oracle, I, rep I, I reported to Safra Katz, who was the president, and then she reported to Larry Ellison, who then was the CEO, now as the chairman. Uh, going back to the question of uh, budgeting and resource allocation and saying no, uh, I, one of my one thing I learned from Larry was uh, he he talked to Thomas Curry, the head of engineering, and said, uh, "Look, there's this new product we have, Oracle Exadata. Uh, we, we really need to spend more money on this. We need to accelerate it. You know, we're, let's let's spend another fifty million dollars to 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 make it better and bring it out sooner." And Thomas said, uh, sure, I'd love to do that, uh, raise my budget by $50 million. And Larry said, Thomas, you have a $3 billion budget, find the $50 million. <laughs> and so that idea that if you give your executives sufficient resources, you don't have to, you know, the, the numbers might, for a smaller company, might be 5 million instead of 50 million or 500,000. But the idea is the same, which is, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna give you a basket of resources, money and people, and I'm gonna tell you what the goals are and then you figure out how to allocate it within your area. And if we have to reallocate it, I'm not gonna tell you how to reallocate it. You figure out where to take it away from. I thought that was a really interesting, uh, important lesson that just you know, came directly from Larry. Uh, and interestingly, a quite, one thing I learned, another thing I learned from him is how he spent his time. I mean, he, here he's the CEO of this enormous industry. He spent 80% of his time on product and engineering. He's personally very technical. He has enormous technical experience. And that's for a technology company, that's the important place to spend your time. Every Monday, he would spend an hour or two in a sales pipeline meeting every Monday, wherever he was in the world, uh, and understand what was our quarterly forecast? Why did it change this week from last week? So very focused on sales execution. And then every year, he would spend time on the sales compensation structure. Uh, we had 30,000 salespeople. And so 
we had complicated sales compensation incentives for different teams, different products, different geographies. And he understood that incentive compensation was very important and he wanted to make sure the levers were in the right place. So just fascinating uh, to see how, how, where he spent his time personally and then where he delegated. And in your role as, as a CFO, when you were reporting to uh, the CEO in, in other uh, companies, you know, what was that dynamic like in terms of trust and, and how did you get into this cadence of figuring out, hey, what does a CEO like to own themselves? What do they like to delegate? And what did that kind of journey look like? Was it very different in each of the opportunities, Nielsen and DoubleClick and King World and all these other places? And what lessons did you take away about kind of, you're essentially managing uh, up in, in some of those uh, uh, areas, right? And so how did you uh, approach that? The first rule is no surprises. So uh, CEOs don't like to be surprised. And yet, of course, every month there's another surprise. But the question is, can you, let, let's imagine you're entering into a situation where things could go wrong. You tell the CEO and maybe you tell the board, we could lose this big customer. We could, uh, we're entering into this new area. It could, maybe it's not going to work at all. And so we at least map out scenarios of things that could be surprises. So then if it, if the bad news does happen, people say, yeah, I, I guess I anticipated that and that it might happen. And then here's the mitigation plan. So that's a very important part of it. Under promising and over delivering is very important uh, for, for just leadership in general. Uh, and then when, in terms of what the CEO wants to delegate and what they don't, it's, it's the simplest thing is to just observe what they do, how they spend their time and, and ask them. And to say, of all the things that you're doing, what do you like doing least? And can I help take that off your plate for you? Uh, and sometimes I'll say, yeah, I, I was, I've been waiting for someone to ask me to do that. So I'd love, I'd love for you to do that. Just, why don't you do that? And just, you know, let me know what's going on. Tell me what I need to know, whether it's let's have a weekly meeting or a monthly meeting, or just send me an email from time to time if, if something new comes up. So asking not only what areas I can, I can be in charge, I can take off your plate, but also how do you want to communicate? Do you want to communicate in in-person meetings by, by email, by text message, by, do you want to hear weekly updates? Do you want to be in writing? Do you want it to be just don't call me at all unless there's a problem? Uh, there's a lot of different management styles and it's pretty important for always important for me to understand what my boss wanted. And then it was important for me to communicate to my subordinates how, how I like to, to, um, to hear about what was going on. A similar variant of that is the board, right? And obviously, you know, like you said, the board's job ultimately is to make the decision on hiring and firing uh, the CEO, but it's also incredibly important for a CFO to build confidence uh, in the board when it comes to governance and some of those things, the CFO has a special position, right? And so how do you approach that, the relationship uh, with the board members? Did you have your own cadence of interacting and dealing with uh, the board members outside of kind of maybe the uh, formal board meetings and things like that? And, and what are some lessons you took away uh, from that experience? Usually the CFO and the chair of the audit committee have a, a, a special relationship. They meet frequently. Uh, I would typically meet at least once a quarter with the chair of the audit committee outside of the audit committee meetings. And in some cases, once a month, if things were, if there was a lot going on. And then of course, if there was an acquisition or a financing or something uh, that was out of the ordinary, we'd have special meetings on that. And so I would both as the chair of the audit committee getting to know my CFOs and as a CFO getting to know my, the chair of my audit committee uh, that was the primary board relationship. 
Uh, and then with the rest of the board, it depended on their level of interest. Uh, some board members were very interested in the financials and some didn't really care that much and, and sort of let the, the, uh, the more financially oriented board members take care of that. Uh, and then there would be often be social occasions as well. Many of my companies would have a board dinner the night of the board meeting and you'd get to sit next to someone, get to know them outside of a business context. And, and you might have other overlapping areas of interest. Like you might, you, you might be on, have one board relationship, but then in another company, they're a customer or a supplier or a, a speaker at an event or something like that. So it, it's, it's, it is very helpful to have those multiple ways of having relationships with the board. Got it. Awesome. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time, uh, you know, picking your brain on, um, you know, how the job has evolved and, and uh, ask you to look around the corner a little bit and things like that. You're in an especially interesting seat working with a lot, lots of early stage startups in your role as, as the operating partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, right? And so before I do that, quick reminder to everyone, if you have questions, there's a Q&A button at the, at the bottom of uh, your Zoom screen. Please go ahead and put it in there. I'll, I'll start asking those in a couple of minutes here. And all right, so, uh, you know, Jeff, just stepping back a bit, right? So you've uh, seen the role of that CFO evolve over a good amount of time. How do you think when you first became CFO, King One, right? And how has is, how is the job changed from then to now, right? And has it changed at all? In several ways, if you're a public company CFO, the biggest change is the rise of activist investors. Uh, 20 plus years ago, they, they were not really a factor and today they're a factor even for very large companies. And so you have, uh, it, there's, there's always the risk that if, if somehow the stock doesn't perform, you end up with a hostile outsider trying to have, make some major changes and, and it just creates a, a greater level of uh, concern. Uh, there's also things like uh, cybersecurity, which are are now, even though it's a technical question, it's the, the, typically the CFO is the chief risk officer, uh, and there have been devastating examples of cybersecurity attacks on companies, which uh, this, the CFO often needs to be involved in how much should we invest in cybersecurity, which of course does not help your ROI, it's just the cost, but it's 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 insurance, and it's, it's a way of both uh, preventing something and then mitigating a problem if it, if it develops. Uh, beyond the public aspect of it, I think the, a big change is the availability of data. There, there's so much more data available to a finance team and more tools and software available to understand and analyze that data, whether it's through AI or other, other ways that you can make a, a, a CFO can, the factory part of what the CFO does in terms of the, the accounting and the processing and the credit collections can be much more automated through tools like Tesorio for credit collections or uh, outsourced services like Vendor for, uh, for procurement or of course products like Airbase. Uh, and, and then there's the, the data side of it means that often you have a data team or data analyst team reporting to the CFO to help with, uh, with decision-making. All right, and as you look ahead, like you, you work with lots of late stage company CFOs. Also you're on boards of public companies. Uh, as you look at, ahead at next five years, 10 years, uh, a bunch of people in the audience today, they're probably up for those CFO jobs in the next five to 10 years, right? What would you tell them if you were to look around the corner a bit in terms of skills they should, you know, think about, focus on uh, areas that you think will be important to learn more about, uh, you know, as we go into the next five to 10 years? Areas, uh, 
going forward, uh, I, I think the fundamentals haven't changed. It's you, you need to understand your business. Uh, you need to understand the internal accounting control side of things. Uh, and then you need to understand the, the, the planning, budgeting, resource allocation. When, when you have a CEO is making resource allocation decisions all the time. If I'm a one product US company, and we want to expand, should I start a second product or should I take the first product into Europe or should I do both at the same time? How do you make that decision? Can you bring data and analysis and can the CFO help with that decision? Uh, should I grow faster and lose more money or should I grow slower and make more money? That trade-off is every decision, every company has to make that decision. So there are, there are quite a few decisions like that that are really important to make. And then capital raising, how much money should I raise? When, at what valuation? How do I do it? Who should I raise from? So those three areas, the internal processes and controls, the decision analysis and the capital raising have been the core to the CFO role in the past. And I think they'll continue to be the core to the CFO role. Awesome, fantastic. So I want to jump into audience questions now, but before that, a quick kind of reminder to everyone, um, you know, Airbase, we are a spend management platform. We mostly focus on kind of small to mid market companies and help them bring all of the non-payroll dollars into one platform instead of having a separate corporate card system, bill payment system, expense reimbursement system. You can just have everything in a single place and real-time visibility, monthly closes become much, much easier because it's all going through one system, all of that, right? So if you want to learn more, uh, Laura's going to put up a quick yes, no question, please let us know. We're happy to kind of get on the call and, and tell you more about it. And uh, awesome. So uh, let, let me jump into the hey, question. Joe, I can just add something about uh, Airbase. When early in my career, there were only a handful of software companies for CFOs. It was you know, Oracle and SAP and things like that. And now there are, I have a list. I have over a hundred, a list of over a hundred software products for CFOs like Airbase. And because you have this cloud software with APIs and they call it Interact, it just makes everyone's life easy. And so if you are trying to do things manually with Excel spreadsheets and things like that, and you don't have a modern tech stack with products like Airbase, you're just missing out on, on an opportunity. So it's not just Airbase, it's all these other tools are, are so effective uh, and it, it makes the life, the, the CFO job much easier. Thank you, uh, I, I appreciate that. And uh, let's, let's jump into uh, the questions from the audience. Uh, you know, Danny, uh, you wanted to know how do you build capital market expertise if you're a CFO from an FPNA background, but you don't really have Wall Street experience, right? So, what are your thoughts on that? Well, if your company is doing transactions, the way to get the experience is by asking whoever you need approval from, whether it's the CFO or CEO, to to be involved in those transactions. So, if you're raising a private round of equity, if you're raising venture debt either ask to be the lead or to be the number two seat on that. And be, it, it, as, as in uh, the, the uh, show Hamilton, be in the room where it happens. So if you can be involved in that process of raising equity or raising debt and you see how it works, and then the next time you take a more leadership role, it's, it, it's not, it's not the, the most complex process in the world. You just need to do it a couple of times to, to feel confident in it. All right. So Jordan has an interesting question. How valuable was your MBA in your career if you look back on it? Well, I think it was very valuable. As a business, uh, in, in business school, I took classes on finance and accounting, on decision processes and decision trees and things like that, classes on leadership, on how to build teams. Of course, you, you get a lot of experience in the real world as well. And so I think the combination of the classroom experience and the real world experience turned out to be 
to be pretty good. Also, you work with phenomenal professors and peers who you end up meeting later on. And, and especially if you get to go to one of the top business schools, it's, you end up with just phenomenal relationships. So I'm, I'm absolutely glad I did it. And I think it was, it was terrific training early in your career. And then also my training at both BCG and First Boston there are some companies, the big four accounting firms, the, the major investment banks, private equity firms, uh, the consulting firms, I think of them as academy companies, uh, where if you go, and GE in the finance department for many years is like this, where you, you work there for a number of years, you just get great fundamental training, which, which sticks with you for the rest of your career. Awesome. So I had the same question that Guzel, I, I hope I'm pronouncing the name right, and, and uh, which is around the reference checks. You said earlier, uh, uh, Jeff, that you have uh, an interesting way of doing reference checks and, and uh, thoughts around that. Like, please, can you share those? Yeah, the problem with reference checks is when you call someone up, they're not going to tell you the truth about their friend or about someone, even if they're a business acquaintance, if it's negative. So how do you get them to tell the truth? And what I found is the best way to do that is comparison. So let's say I'm doing a reference check on a CFO and I'm talking to a CEO. I'll say, Sally, you're the CEO of this company. You work with this person. How many different CFOs have you worked with over your career? And she'll say, I've worked with eight CFOs. Okay, of all those eight CFOs, who was the best one? And she'll say, well, it was Ellen. Okay, and on a scale of one, zero to 10, what was Ellen? Well, Ellen was a nine. Okay, now we're talking about John. I'm doing the reference check on John. Of those eight CFOs, if you're rank ordering them, where was John? And, he'll, and she'll say, okay, well, John was number three. So first of all, you realize, well, John wasn't number one. So that, that's important information. And then, okay, on a scale of zero to 10, what's John? Well, John was a, a, a seven. Okay, well, you said Ellen was a nine and John was a seven. So now compare Ellen to John. Why is Ellen a nine and John is a seven? So now what you're doing is you're not saying the strengths and weaknesses of John. You're comparing Ellen, a real person, to John, a real person. And it's much easier for someone to give you an honest answer to that question. And I found that to be very helpful. Awesome. That's a fantastic framework. I am I have two reference calls this afternoon. I want to start testing this out <laughs> right away. So uh, Brooke has, has a question about uh, tips for becoming a board member for the first time and getting that opportunity. And, and uh, how do you think about that if you don't already have a lot of experience uh, where people are coming to you and asking you to be a board member? Like, how, how do you think about uh, getting that first opportunity? The, a board search is very much like a CFO search, which is people have specific criteria in mind. So I was recruited to the board of Kaiser Permanente, the big nonprofit health plan by a, the board recruiter at Corn Ferry. And the board spec was they wanted large company enterprise experience, technology experience, audit committee experience, uh, and they wanted someone to live in California. So I was large company technology audit committee, California. Other people we wanted a medical doctor, or we wanted uh, academic experience, or we wanted government experience. And so the question is for a particular company, what experience do you have that fits that company need? Do you have particular industry experience? Are they looking for an audit committee chair where as a CFO, you could be the audit committee chair, uh, or maybe you, you were an auditor and, they, and that's a particularly helpful thing. And if you don't have the experience, feel free to start at a small company. So Maybe you're not gonna get hired by a billion dollar company, but maybe you get hired by a, a small business with 50 million in revenue or a nonprofit. And it's often gonna come from relationships. Uh, and so if you just let people know that you're interested and available uh, and, and if you have a particular 
set of experience in that industry, which could be helpful, uh, people are often eager to, to give you a chance. Awesome. So Cindy had a question about, you talked uh, about how you found that having uh, skip level folks reporting to you or engaging with them was always very illuminating, right? And did you, did you only do that when uh, the direct report left or there was no one? Or did you also try to engage with skip levels even when somebody was there? And I guess her, her question specifically is, uh, sometimes people feel insecure when you know the boss wants to do that, where you want to spend a lot of time with skip levels. And how do you deal with that? And what's your advice on that? Yes, well, the first technique that I talked about was often if someone leaves, you, you feel like in a rush to replace them. And my, my experience was if I took a little time, three or six months to replace them, and actually I learned a lot. And I, I, I think that turned out to be a pretty good technique. The question of doing skip levels normally is you certainly don't want to go around your subordinates and have people two levels down feeling like you're spying on your subordinate or something. So that, that creates a very divisive culture. And the way to handle that is a couple of ways. One is you just walk around the office and you don't have a formal meeting behind closed doors where you're saying, well, tell me about your boss. You just hang out in the lunchroom and you know, pre-COVID, post-COVID, and you say, you know, what are you working on? How are things going? You know, what's going well? You know, what what if you were me, what would you do better? You know, what should, what can we do as a company? You build relationships with people and you just uh, you, you, it's management by walking around. I think that's the, the most helpful way. The second thing to do is I would have uh, a, a monthly lunch with people at all levels, not just two levels down, but I would just, I would randomly pick people throughout the organization and say, let's all get together. Often people didn't know each other. So I'd start the meeting by saying, everyone just say who you are, what department you work in, what do you do? What's your number one priority? And then, you know, let's talk about the company and, and the industry and how are things going and questions and have questions a Q&A session like this. It was a way for people at multiple levels in the organization to get to know me better. Uh, and for me just to hear somewhat randomly what's going on in different departments. And you, you just, you pick things up. And, and then you, I had a, it's called the mosaic uh, process. If you think about what a mosaic is in paint, in, in, the, in art, you have these dots, but over time the dots build a pattern. And so if you just make a point of going out meeting a lot of people and getting to know them and having open-ended conversations. You... I think we lost yeah, you for a second there, but yeah, I think... they, uh, what I was saying is the mosaic, you collect a lot of the dots and then they form a pattern. Got it. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Here's another good question. Ed, I uh, wanted to know if you're a CFO, uh, how do you get the board to discuss long-term strategy when it's more interested in short-term financials, even when the company is already doing well, right? But how do you get them to look at the long-term? The technique that I use is what is, if, if you're going to spend three hours or five hours in a board meeting, there's a lot of high-powered people in that meeting. What's the most efficient use of that time? And I divide the board time into three buckets. The first bucket is compliance approving stock options, things like that, reporting out from the audit committee, that's just required. That's typically less than 10% of the time. The second bucket is what I call show and tell, which is here's what happened last quarter, here's the new customers you brought in, here's the new products we're launching. All the stuff where management is telling the board, just bringing the board up to speed, provides zero value for management. All it is is just teaching the board. Most of that can be done in writing in advance. And I think most of that is a poor use of the board's time. Many board meetings are two thirds that, and it, I don't think it's helpful. 
The third part, which is the most helpful, is management coming in and saying, we're thinking about making this decision. We're thinking about launching this new product. We're thinking about going to this new geography. We're thinking about making this acquisition. We haven't decided to do it yet. Here are the pros and cons. Here's why I, the CEO, am recommending this, but it's early in my thinking. I'm gonna come back in a month and talk, tell you more about it, but I'd love to get the input from the board now, early in this process. That is the most valuable time where if the board is any good, they can help with their views and their questions and their judgment when there's still time to influence the decision as opposed to coming in after the decision's been made. So I think spending more than half your time, maybe two thirds of your time in the board meeting on decisions we're considering, but we have not yet made is the best use of time. And then that naturally leads to the long range strategy because it's, you both have, you know, you have the, the, the quarter strategy, you have the year long strategy, and then you have the multi-year strategy. You have these three, I think, I think McKinsey called, I can't remember they're called like phase one, there's, there's a word for this, the time frame, time frame one, time frame two, time frame three. I forget the technical word for it. Uh, and it's pretty important to be thinking about all three of those. Got it. Awesome. So Tyler has a question about, you know, the world going remote, right? So everybody's remote and, um, you know, how should finance leaders start thinking about um, how that's going to impact you know, cost and wages and where your people hire, uh, you're hiring people. And as people start coming back into the office, some of them want to come back, some are going to work remotely. I'm assuming the companies you're on the board of and you're advising are seeing all of these issues, right? So how are you thinking about some of these, uh, you know, issues around the financial impact of remote work on companies? I don't think the cost is going to be a major factor. Uh, even before remote work, Hiring people in lower cost locations was always an important part of the strategy. Uh, Oracle built up centers of excellence. In North America, we were in Sacramento, in Latin America, in Costa Rica. We were in Bucharest, Romania, in Eastern Europe, in Bangalore, India, and in Dublin, Ireland, and then in Beijing. And so in each of those countries, we would have large numbers of, uh, of people with terrific skills. Uh, and in we wanted to, instead of having a people in one at a time in lots of different places. We wanted them to, to physically be in the same location so they could interact with each other, which was more efficient, but they were paid local wages, which would have been half the wage or, or two thirds the wage of San Francisco. So that idea of having geographic centers of excellence has been around for a long time. Uh, I think what's gonna change is not so much the cost as the, the how people interact. If you, there, we have a number of companies at Bessemer where they're hundred percent remote. They literally don't have offices. So they have all these systems for how to have meetings, how to interact with people. It's, it's, it's a cadence of that. And it's it's very effective way of running a business. If you're all in one building, uh, it's very efficient and effective. But if you have this mixed model where some people are at headquarters and a lot of people are not, that's the biggest challenge because the people who are not, there are going to be conversations at headquarters that the people who are not at headquarters are just going to be left out of. And you just have to work really hard at coming up with processes and systems and communication devices to make sure that the people who are not at headquarters know what's going on and feel included. And, and, and that's, there's no simple answer to that. It's, it's, I think there's gonna be a lot of trial and error, but there, of course, there are so many great tools, you know, whether it's Zoom and Slack and, and uh, shared, uh, you know, shared resources online to, to do that. Got it. That's awesome. And we have three more minutes. I'm going to keep asking questions. Unfortunately, I might not be able to get through all of them. Tim wanted to hear your thoughts on when you make hiring decisions, do you always hire for what the job is right now or what it will be 
say over the next 12 to 18 months and, and how far ahead in the future do you try to anticipate the needs of that role and when you're making that uh, hiring decision, right? It depends on the growth rate of the company and how much money you have. So if the company is growing fast and you have plenty of money, absolutely hire someone who's way overqualified for the current job so they so that they're the perfect for the job in a year or two. And at DoubleClick, uh, one reason for DoubleClick success was uh, we, we did exactly that. Uh, and I, I should mention Dwight Merriman, who is the co-founder of DoubleClick and then the co-founder of MongoDB, did that in engineering. Uh, David Rosenblatt, who's the CEO of First Dibs, which is when Public did that. So we had this great leadership team. And at our size, when we had 200 people, we had a management team for a much bigger company. Uh, if you're constrained uh, because you just don't have the money, then you just hire the best person you can. And the question then is, do you hire the more senior person who maybe is not going to grow as much, or do you hire the more junior person who hasn't done it before, but maybe has a has a more runway? And I guess I have a bias to the person who's a quick learner who will figure it out. And it's just sort of my personal bias. Uh, and then the other then the other question is, what if you're not growing at all? Uh, you know, then you just hire the person you need now because you don't need to hire ahead because uh, you, you, the, the most important thing is to is to fix whatever gap there is today. Got it. That's awesome. So, Jeff, I'm going to wrap up now. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. This is a fascinating conversation. Thanks again. And also, thanks to everybody who uh, took the time to join us today. Hopefully, you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And I did, Tejo. Can I have a little advertisement for a couple of things? Yeah. Oh, go for it. Go for uh, it. First of all, I serve on the board of Poshmark, and we announced our CFO is leaving. And so we're doing a search for public company Poshmark, $3 billion market cap. If you or a friend are qualified and like to be a CFO of Poshmark, please reach out to me, jeff at bvp.com. And secondly, I'm uh, likely to form a new SPAC. Uh, my current SPAC is merging with AppPoint. And if you have a billion dollar plus technology company that's private that would like to go public by merging with SPAC, let me know. All right, that's Jeff at bvp.com. So thank you so much, Jeff, again, and have a good rest of the day, uh, all of you. Very good. Have a good weekend. Terrific. Jeff at bvp.com. B as in Bessemer Venture Partners. Thanks. <laughs>